Hey, Rockbridge, my name is Matt. I want to welcome you at all six of our physical locations, as well as those of you who are watching in our online connections experience. Hey, before we get into our message this weekend, I want to remind everybody that we are moving into this 20-year anniversary celebration, which we really want to be less of a celebration and more of a seeking of God for what's next, what's, what will bring Him the most glory, and how we can be more faithful to Him, His Word, and His cause. So we're calling ourselves to pray and to fast on six consecutive Wednesdays, starting this coming Wednesday, August the 3rd. That's called Wednesdays at 6.33. We've got prayer guides and different things that are going on. One way you can keep in touch and, and be prompted to pray in unity with this church family is to text and sign up for Time with God. And you can text 888-744-0761. So this is a time in church where you can bring your phone out and go ahead and sign up. It'll give you a ba daily Bible reading plan. Also, how we're praying together as God's people, as part of this all-in movement, as part of this 20-year movement as we move forward in faith in God. So now we jump into our message series, and what we've been doing this entire summer is we've just been in, in various passages of Scripture in the Old Testament and finding things, truth, stories, insights that just cause us to stop and go, wow. And, and then we're digging into that wow for what it has for us. So today, we're going to ask a question to set up where we're going. We're going to be in the book of Exodus, second book of the Old Testament. You can open your Bible, turn your Bible on. Of course, you're welcome to follow along on the screen. But today's wow gets set up by this question. You've probably asked it. I've probably asked it. God, what are you doing? Right? Things have happened in the world, in your life, in your story, uh, in, in current events, in history even. It's not like a question that just we're asking in the 21st century. But we've asked, God, what are you doing? And, and we've just sort of sat with that question and, and, and asked that question, God, what are you doing? And, and the answer to that question is going to be somewhat incredible to, for us to discover and, and, and challenging for us to wrestle with, but it's also an important question for everything that we're doing, everything that God wants to do. And let me say this, if you're like a guest here or you're a rock bridger, you, this is an incredible weekend to be here because this question has such relevance for us as a church, for us as a church moving forward past our 20-year mark. If you're checking out Rockbridge, this is a great message for you to hear because how, the, how we come to the answer of this question is so clarifying for the kind of people that we want to be at Rockbridge Community Church. Now, to wrestle with this question, we're going to jump in and again journey with the God's chosen people, the Israelites, as they're coming out of Egypt. And God does something that's a wow moment. It's like a crazy wow. It's a, what are you doing? So he's moved them out of Egypt, or moving them out of Egypt. Pharaoh has said, hey, y'all can leave. Get out of here. After the 10 plagues, and Pharaoh has granted permission for them to leave. And then God does something. And the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. So he basically says, I, I want you to take your, your fledgling nation and camp between, in, on a beachhead, basically, between here and, 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 this, and this, this sea, the Red Sea that we would call it. And he says, now Pharaoh is going to look at this. Pharaoh's going to find out about this, and he's going to say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. 
The wilderness has boxed them in between the sea. They're like between the wilderness and the sea. They're like between a rock and a hard place. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Now, now we can get kind of bent out of shape and, and get confused about what does this mean? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is not the point of the message. I will simply say that what we see is sometimes God gives people over to their own devices, and Pharaoh repeatedly, earlier in Exodus, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart in response to what God is doing. And, and so God's just going to use that, and God's going to harden his heart to continue this story that he's doing or this story that he's authoring of the Israelites. So he says, I will pursue them. And so we look at this situation, and we're like, this is crazy. It's militarily inexplicable. You would never put a people that are in danger in between a geographic rock and a hard place, the wilderness and the sea. You would never do that. It, it, it lacks common sense, and it's kind of emotionally insensitive, right? Because, hey, we're moving out of Egypt. You know, we've had 400 years of bondage. We've been in slavery. We're finally free. We've just seen the 10 plagues. Man, we're going to be God's people going to get the land that God's promised us, and it just doesn't make sense. There's nothing about this story from our minds apart from the revelation of God, that makes any kind of sense whatsoever. And so the question is, God, what are you doing? I mean, what is going on here, and, and, and how do we wrestle with this, and how do we understand this? And then God tells Moses why he's telling them, the Israelites, to do this. God tells Moses why he's giving a command that's military in, inexplicable, why he's giving a command that's emotionally insensitive to the history and the circumstances of the Israelite people, and why he's giving a command that lacks complete common sense. He says, then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And then, so the Israelites did this. They did what God had commanded. So this entire operation, God says, is so that I will receive glory, that the Egyptians will know who I am as a glorious supreme being, as the glorious God, as Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Now, God's glory is this incredible term that we see in Scripture, and it's kind of like the sum total and the full weight of who God actually is, His reality. Uh, everything about God, His beauty, His greatness, His goodness, that He's strong, that He's kind, that He's merciful, that He's just, that He's satisfying, and that He's infinite, that God's glory would be known. And so we got to stop there and say, okay, God, you're putting your people in a vulnerable position. You're, you're, you're asking your people to do something that makes no sense using just our brains, and, and you're doing it, God, for your glory? God, what are you doing? And, and that's the answer that we get from this text. And so we drop back from that, and we start to unpack this and see, man, how pervasive is this? Is this just one of those kind of weird stories, and, and we never hear about this kind of thing again, and it's no big deal? I mean, Matt, I thought the Bible was kind of a self-help book. I thought the Bible was like a guide to my best life now. Matt, I, I, I thought, you know, God was going to take care of people and be okay. You know, and, and what is this? What are we saying? Well, when you kind of pull back and, and you get underneath Scripture, you realize this, that God's goal is and always has been His glory. 
being displayed, being known, being received. In Isaiah 43, 7, we see this, everyone who bears my name and is created and is created for my glory. I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. So when we see passages like we're wrestling with in Exodus 14, we see this, that God is actually being remarkably consistent, that God can, God has to operate with 100% integrity all the time forever. And so the consistency of God being about His glory is pervasive in Scripture, that this story in Exodus 14 is not just a one-off and you never need to read it and wrestle with it again because it's just so weird and you'll never understand it. No, it is actually illustrative. It actually shows us that this verse in Isaiah 43, 7 is how God operates. But we go all the way back to the beginning of the human race, and God says this. He says, let us make mankind in our image, that we would reflect the image of God. And God is glorious. So somehow you and I in our humanness in our, in the, are reflecting, displaying God's glory so that they may rule over. So he gives man dominion, mankind dominion over the earth. So then God creates mankind in his image to rule, to display, to reflect his glory. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And this is so consistent when you get to the New Testament. One of the authors of about half the New Testament, Paul, gives this command. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you're going to do everything for the glory of God. Now, that's so clear in Scripture, but where it's not clear is out in the world, because what have we been increasingly encouraged to do? What, what, what is very natural for us to do? It's not to be about the glory of God. It's to be about me, my deal, my wants, my agenda. And that comes quite naturally, and we love it when the me, the selfie culture, if you will, gets catered to and gets spoken to. And if we looked at our prayer list, you know, we can pray about anything, but we might be kind of indicted or convicted that so much of our praying is really about us and or maybe our comfort or our situation. So even if you want to put, let's just say this, maybe maybe you want to push back and you're like, man, I don't see this, and I'm not sure about this, and I'm not sure how this works. And it's hard for me to think about, well, the universe itself kind of gives us a clue and illustrates this. So, so the Bible says in Psalm 19:1, the heavens, all creation declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we go out in the, the world and we kind of, it screams, be about yourself, look out for you. It screams selfie. It screams me, myself, and I. And, and, and God, you're supposed to help with that. God, you keep us from the uncomfortable, keep bad things from happening, all that kind of stuff. So the, unit, so the, the world we live in screams that, but the heavens or the creation counteract that. Because look at, look, like, look at this. This is like the Milky Way galaxy, and it's like 100,000 light years wide. And, and there's the sun. And so we're just this one little speck uh, in one remote galaxy of a universe with billions of galaxies. So the heavens are saying, hey, there's a lot more out there. There's something bigger. And the scriptures would say, yes, the bigger thing, the most important thing is the glory of God. 
It's like this. You can't Google where we are in compared to the galaxy. You can't get out your Google Maps or Waze and figure out where we are. I mean, it's, we are, it's like this is so vast and, and we're so small. But, it, but the creation coincides with Scripture. They, they connect that it is about something bigger than you and I. It's about the glory of God. And this is where we have to kind of confess, though, right? We've alluded to this, that our goal is oftentimes our glory. That our goal is oftentimes our glory. And when we really understand sin, sin is what? All of sin, every one of us, and that is falling short of the glory of God. We were created for what? Isaiah 43, 7, for the glory of God. God operates with Israel and Pharaoh. Why? For the glory of God. We're designed by God, male and female, to display some of His glory in, our, in the world, the part of the world, the small part of the world in which we live, right? So when we mess, when we live for our glory, when we forget about God, don't want to acknowledge God, we're falling short of our purpose. We're falling short of the glory of God. Look at one of the first big kind of sins in, in, the, New, in the Old Testament. This is when they want to build this tower, the Tower of Babel up to heaven. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And, and you think about it, how often have you thought that or heard that? Man, I got to go out today or I got to go out in the world and make a name for myself. Maybe you don't say it that way. You may be just like, man, I'm so worried about what people are going to think about me. We, we want credit. We want recognition. We want honor. And, and it's just all, it goes all the way back that maybe our goal is often our glory. And then Paul circles all the way back, and he says, hey, none of us are really have an excuse or a reason. He says, God's invisible attributes, <clears throat> that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through, the thing, through what he has made. That creation is showing us, and we saw those images of the galaxy, that creation is showing us God is dominant. God's power, God's nature, God's glory is what it's all about. But when we ignore this, whether it's in the Bible of Revelation or the revelation of creation, as a result, Paul says, people don't have any excuse. For though they knew God, they did not, what do we not do? Glorify Him as God or show gratitude. So God's goal is His glory. Our goal is often our glory, but there's a third truth that we need to wrestle with and recognize. Our penultimate happiness and purpose are found in, from God's glory. So the paradox is we pursue our glory because we think making a name for ourselves through money, through career, through relationships, through whatever, that we pursue our glory thinking that that's going to make us happy and that's going to be our purpose. Paradoxically, we're actually working against our happiness because our ultimate happiness and purpose are found in God's glory because that's what we were created for. This is why guys like Moses, who'd spent most of their ministry or career life trying to get the Israelites into the promised land, and then God comes and he says, Moses, you're going to take them on up in there, but I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you. And Moses says, if you don't go, then I don't want to go. 
And he prays, he says, God, here's what I want, really, this is what I want above everything else. Before, before we talk about land and prosperity and a land flowing with milk and honey, or before we talk about, you know, a nation without inflation, before we talk about a good Dow Jones for the day, God, show me your glory. And God says, or he said, I will cause all my goodness, remember the glory of God is all, the sum total of his attributes, to pass in front of you, you'll feel the weight, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And, and then Paul comes along, and it comes back to glory. So Exodus, New Old Testament, and then Paul in 2 Corinthians, New Testament, he says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. So we see God's glory. We see that in Jesus. We see that in the gospel. And we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That this is our purpose, and this is our joy, and this is our happiness. And this leads Paul later in reflection in kind of an autobiographical moment to describe the ambition of his life. And he says, everything that was a gain to me, my resume, my career, what people thought of me, my upbringing, my family name, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That knowing Christ, my Lord, knowing God, Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews 1.3, that is more value to me, to, to me than anything else. So because of him, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, and yes, that's what it is, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And Paul's like, that's my purpose. Paul's like, this is where I maximize my happiness. And then we go to heaven, and what makes heaven heaven? And a lot of times we're like, hey, man, I get to see my loved ones again. Amen to that. A lot of times, like, man, I, my body's going to be healed. Amen to that. But what makes heaven the penultimate experience of infinite and eternal perfection is this. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That's Jesus because he's the sacrificial lamb that opens up heaven to people. Or it's temple. And look, the city has no need of sun or moon which we think of as necessary for supporting life in the rhythms of the day and the month and the year, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. For the glory of God is our life. For the glory of God is our eternal purpose. What makes heaven heaven is the infinite and increasing enjoyment of the glory of God. And so that brings us to the fourth point. The most loving thing and the greatest good that God can do is actually to be about His glory. The most loving, if the penultimate thing for you and me, for our heart, purpose, and happiness is, to, is found in inside of God's glory. And God created us and purposed us and designed us and destined us for His glory. Then the greatest good God can do the most loving thing he can do, and remember, his glory is his goodness. His glory is his love. Then the, most, the greatest thing he can do, the greatest good he can do, the most loving thing he can do is be about his glory. Because when he's about his glory, he maximizes what he gets, which is glory from his creatures, but he also maximizes the goodness we receive. You reveal, God, the path of life to me. In your presence, 
is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. They never run out. This joy, we all know what temporary joy is. He says, in my presence, which is glorious, is abundant joy. So let's go back to creation and talk about it a little bit. Here's an image of the sun. And we know that our solar system revolves around the sun. And here's us, tiny little bitty, can't even see it, speck of a planet called Earth. Now, if Earth were in the center of our solar system, astrologers have studied this. If, if Earth replaced the sun as the center, the whole gravitational order that supports the revolution of all these planets around the sun and ultimately supports your life and my life and the seasons and everything, would, would, the, the solar system would just collapse. It would be non-sustainable, non-life-giving. So what's best for all these planets is for the sun and all of us who occupy, even this little tiny planet, the ones, what's best is for the sun to remain in the center. So think of it this way. If the sun was a person, this sun were a person, the most loving thing the sun could do would be to stay at the center of the solar system. So God, the most loving thing God can do to sustain life as it was designed to be, to maximize happiness, to maximize our purpose and our fulfillment, is to put himself at the center of the entire cosmos and at the center of the story that he has revealed to us and invite us back into his story of glory. When you're in the middle of a tough day, middle of a tough situation, that's kind of hard, right? That's kind of challenging, right? And that's where Israel finds itself sandwiched between the wilderness and the, and the Red Sea. And so we rejoin them on their journey. So the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready. He took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt. Now, again, militarily, Israel is defenseless, and they're in a bad position to even try to defend themselves. So the, the Egyptians and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea where God had put them between a rock and a hard place, supposedly for this thing we're talking about, for his glory. And so as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them, and the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. And then they said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? We want to go back. We don't want to be about God's glory we want to be about our safety. We want to be about our protection. It was better where we were. Isn't this, Moses, what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're missing it. They don't understand it. And, and, and we find ourselves somewhat in sometimes in these similar situations where we're like, God, what are you doing? I don't get it. And Moses gets it. And so he says to the people, he says, do not be afraid. You stand firm and you see 
the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you just have to be quiet. Because God is about his glory. And then God responds a couple verses later in verse 18. He says, listen, he's being consistent. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And that's the point of Scripture. That's the point of life. That's the point of the universe. So it seems to me there's three responses when when, when we understand this or wrestle with this or see this, okay? There's three responses. The first one, we see it in the story. We see it in our story. We hear it in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can resist and settle for less. That we're designed and destined, we're saved, we're redeemed, we're invited to align with the glory of God. We can resist that, be about ourselves. We can resist that, play it safe. We can resist that, argue with God. God, they, Israel obeyed in one moment. The next moment, they're bitter and angry and take us back to Egypt. They prayed for 400 years to get out of Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt. Put us back in Egypt, God, so you can resist and settle for less. And then this part of my story is part of everybody's story because this is falling short of the glory of God. And it is a constant battle because God's infinite and we're finite. And there's going to be some times where we just don't understand what God's doing. And we want to understand what God is doing. And when those moments, the second response is, and this is kind of what Moses tells the people, be quiet. Reject leaning on your own understanding. It's my favorite verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Reject, it says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And practice relentless trust. Because God tells us something in Proverbs. And and this is hard to swallow. But we see, when we see what God's up to, at least we can rest in that. That's kind of what Moses tells the people. Proverbs says this, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. That there are going to be times in your life where it gets crazier, where it gets harder, where it gets more confusing. There are going to be times in your life where you are going to scratch your head and say, God, what are you doing? You're going to say, God, take me back 10 years, 5 years, 3 months ago. Take me back to Egypt. Take me back to where I was more comfortable. Take me back to the familiar. Take me back when I knew what I was going to do tomorrow and the next day the next day and what I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. God, take me back to that certainty, and and, and you're not going to understand it because God's going to conceal things, and it's his right to do that because he's God. But what we see in Scripture is that God is always working for his glory. And by faith, we have to believe that God works for his glory, and that's also ultimately for our good. Now, the third response when you understand that God's about His glory, is actually going to be a question. Now, before I share the question, I want you to see it in Scripture in operation. The first example is in the life of our Savior and Lord and King Jesus. When He's nearing the end of His ministry time and about to go into the last week of His life, face the cross, die in, a, in, in our place and, and die instead of us, And he's praying and he's wrestling with God a little bit in prayer. And it says this. He says, now my soul is troubled. Because he knows he's going to die one of, if not the most horrific deaths imaginable by crucifixion. He says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
Now, a lot of times in our finite understanding, if God gets us out of something or takes something away that is troubling us, we will say, man, praise the Lord, give glory to God. And we should. But in this situation, and I think we have similar situations in our life, not of this magnitude and not with so much at stake, but we have similar situations where we're like, God save us, and God doesn't always respond the way we want. And so listen to what Jesus said. But that is why I came to this hour. I came to this hour to go through the trouble, to go through the cross. So Jesus says, okay, God, Father, glorify your name. God, this is not about keeping me out of trouble. This is about you glorifying your name. Then a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again as if to say, that's what this whole operation has been about since Genesis 1, prior to Genesis 1, and after Revelation 22. It's about glory, the glory of God. And, and then Paul takes the ministry of Jesus, the accomplishment of Jesus in the crucifixion and in the resurrection, and he says this, and he compares it to Moses' ministry, which was giving of the law, that what we might know of as the Ten Commandments, and, and, and forming of the Israelite nation. And he says, now, if the ministry that brought death, that's the law, because the law shows us how we fall short of the glory of God, chiseled in letters on stones, reference to the Ten Commandments, came with glory, because God revealed His glory in His power on the mountain, Mount Sinai, so that the Israelites were not even able to gaze steadily at Moses' faith because of its glory. The glory of God caused Moses' face to shine, and people couldn't look at it, which was set aside. So all the, the, the ministry of Moses is no longer, right? And now we're into Jesus. The law has been fulfilled perfectly, kept perfectly in Christ how much more will the ministry of the Spirit, which makes known the work of the Son on the cross in the resurrection, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So it's as if God is after more glory. It's as if God is continuing to work for more and more glory. He, we just didn't stop. It's the same thing with Jesus. It's not an, it, More glory comes not from Jesus being rescued from his conspirators and betrayers and murderers, but from Jesus going through that so then Jesus could invite us to be a part of life in Him. So Paul says, all of this is for your benefit, and he's talking about evangelism and sharing of the gospel, and as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be a great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. So that shows us in Scripture this question I want to say to us as a people this, this weekend, and that question is this, what will bring more glory to God. So now that we know everything, what God's up to, ultimately, and we know where ultimate, penultimate happiness and purpose comes from, should we not take our lives, our outlooks, our attitudes, and ask it, God, what will bring more glory to you? Sometimes God says no because that'll bring more glory to Him. And we got to embrace and survive the no and endure the no and trust that more glory will come to God, which is ultimately more good and grace comes to us. But what if this formed the question? At least we should ask the question, pray the question. Sometimes the question is going to cause us to go big and go bold. Sometimes the question is going to cause us to stop something. And sometimes the question is going to cause us to start something. But it seems to me if we are designed and destined to be about the glory of God, God, we ought to be asking this question and lay it over our lives. And as we look as our church, wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be biblical 
if this were the question that guides us into the future. We've written this into our mission statement. Our mission statement used to be to know Christ and make him known. And we wanted to be a little more clear on who we were and what we were about. And so we added, our mission is, and we were intentional to put this phrase, to glorify God, because that's the bottom line, to glorify God by connecting people from all walks of life to life in Christ. And I, I fundamentally believe that we are absolutely, unequivocally not a perfect, perfect church. But I believe we're a church that wants to keep asking, how do we glorify God? How do we bring more glory to God? And when we started this thing, it was not anybody's idea. It was not my idea. It was not Beth's idea. It was not our core group's idea. This was God's idea. When on January 12, 2002, in an unmistakable way, God said, Matt, and you and Beth need to move back and start this new church. And a couple of things became non-negotiables to us because those things were about the glory of God. One of those things was, hey, we're going to be unmistakably all about Jesus Christ. He is our hero. He is the, ra- he's the exact representation of God and the radiance of His glory, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So we're going to be all about Jesus. He is first importance. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Some folks, we get, sometimes we get confused and we think some political issue should be uh, of first importance. So, sometimes we get confused and, and we think something, you know, something out in society. No, Jesus is our hero. We have got to be all about him. And, and another non-negotiable, we said, hey, the Bible, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The Bible is the revelation of God's glory. This is where the Bible is what invites us into God's glory, aligns us to God's glory, shows us that the story of the universe is the story of God's glory, and God wants that to be our story too. So we said, hey, the Bible is our only tradition, and that's the question we're going to ask is, what does the Bible say? So we don't negotiate on that. Because that brings more glory to God. And, and then the third thing, and, and perhaps the most practical thing, where there's, sometimes we get confused or people get confused, we had to understand something. If we are going to be a people that glorifies God, if we're going to be a people who constantly and consistently wrestles with our question of what will bring more glory to God, then we had to say our purposes count more than our preferences. So many churches are organized and oriented around their preferences. I mean, think about it. When you talk to someone about why they go to church, most people are going to give you a reason of preference. Well, I like the preaching, or I like the music. Now, most people are going to say, well, my fr- I got some friends that go there. Oh, they got a great youth program, a good kids ministry. I like their facility. And I I'm not saying any of those things don't have some validity. But what should be the most important question we should ask about any kind of church? Does it work to bring more glory to God? Does what matter to God matter to us? And and I think as we look at our past 20, and maybe, Lord willing, the next 20 or the next 10, or as long as God sees fit for us to hang around, we got to keep living this and asking this, will this bring more glory to God? And so what matters to God will matter to us. And so we believe at Rockbridge that lost people matter to God, so lost people have to matter to us. In, in fact, in Scripture, we see Jesus saying this, 
if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what's he going to do? This is a parable. He will, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And, and you know, this is, this is not completely accurate, but it conveys the heart of God that if God walked into a Rockbridge service and could not find one lost person, is Jesus said, I, Jesus would walk out. Because the church is to be about the heart of God. Lost people matter to God, so they should matter to us. And listen, there's some things about Rockbridge I don't like and I don't prefer, but, I, but, but we do things keeping the one in mind because Scripture tells me that the one matters to God, so it must matter to me, and that brings more glory to God. Paul, after he'd evangelized much of the, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, he has this desire to go to Spain. And look what he says. He goes, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And, you know, Paul, go ahead and retire. Paul, you've done enough. No, no, I want to bring more glory to God. Lost people matter to God. It brings more glory to God. Uh, another thing that matters to God is life change. That, that we, we, as a church, our, our goal is not just growth. Our goal is not just we had service today. Our goal is not just getting a group and then go home. Our, our goal is we need to look more like Jesus. Our goal is life change matters to God, so it matters to us. And, and we lead that way, and we preach that way, and we teach that way, and, and, and that's our goal. Jesus said it this way. He comes near his disciples and said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. He's our hero, right? So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded to you. So he says, look, don't just record a bunch of decisions. Make disciples, people who want to study, learn, and love Jesus and learn to obey him and walk in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that life change matters to God, so life change matters to us, and that brings glory to God. And then a third thing that God has showed me progressively. I didn't get this at first. I didn't get this. It's in our mission statement, this thing about all walks of life. But unity, a group of people that are diverse, are unified around the fact of Jesus being their hero. So unity and diversity matters to God. Make disciples of all the nations. It's why our pursuit is like, is God more glorified by an all-white church? Is God more glorified by a middle-class church? Is God glorified by, by a church with people where everybody votes the same, looks the same, acts the same? Or is God glorified by a bunch of people from all walks of life, all ethnic groups, all languages, all of that stuff, gathered around and praising Him, seeking Him, become, being His disciples? Well, Scripture answers that question. So if the Bibles are only this, uh, tradition and, and we, the first question we ask after, does it bring more glory to God? What does the Bible say? It's clear. It tells us what heaven's going to be like. You have ransomed people for God, for God, for His glory, and you've ransomed them from every tribe, every language, and people and nation. So in some of our campuses, you know, we may sing some songs not in your native language, and, and, and sometimes that makes us uncomfortable, and your preference would be, hey, I, I, I want to say, but what, is, what gives God more glory? And it, but it's not, it's not limited to, to Revelation 5. It comes up again in, in Revelation 7 
where he's looking at into the population of heaven, and there's a vast crowd, too great to count, and every nation and tribe and people and language are standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, and they're all worshiping together with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So creation begins with us being created in the image of God to display the glory of God, uh, <clears throat> and Scripture revelation ends with all of us around the throne giving glory to God, which is the beginning and end, purpose of God. So the question is, what will bring more glory to God? And so we as a church, you know, I, I remember one time, you know, I was standing out talking to someone. We were, we were young. We were young. It was kind of one of those, man, are we even going to be able to have enough people to meet next week? And this lady was like, you know, I just don't know if I can come to church where there's no stained glass windows. And I was like, I can't, ever, I can't promise you we'll ever have stained glass windows. But I can tell you this, we have a vision. And as best we know right now in 2002, our vision is trying to bring more glory to God. And listen, I haven't gotten everything right about this. Our elders haven't, our church hasn't. But this is our heart. And as we talk more about membership and our new membership process, as we talk more about the next 20 years, what if the people of God that, become, that are part of Rockbridge, that become part of Rockbridge through the message of Jesus Christ, what if, this, what if our, our, our penultimate question was not, man, did I like everything that happened today in church? What if our question was always, what will bring more glory to God? And we prayed this, and we worked hard for this with the grace of God inside of us and the Spirit of God empowers in us, and we led in this direction, and we moved in this direction. We'd be on the right side of history, wouldn't we? Because what is history? It's all about, and will always be all about, the glory of God. And with this question guiding us, Rockbridge, and this question guiding your life, your marriage, your home, you will never not be able to say the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for clarity in your scripture. God, sometimes your clarity makes us wrestle. Sometimes your clarity brings us to a crossroads, a point of will we yield and surrender to you and what you've revealed or we continue to go our way. But God, there's not a single person here today that cannot hear and receive the invitation to be a part of your story, your story of glory. And so God, I pray that Rockbridgers, I pray that people who are just maybe checking out Rockbridge or checking out what, even what Christianity means, I pray we would have eyes to see and ears to hear that what you are all about and have always been about is your glory. And God, that's the most loving thing you can do. That's the greatest good you can offer. Thank you for including us, inviting us, and dying for us to become part of your family, your kingdom, your story of your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we all pray. Amen.